have a bully inside your head telling you that you're not good enough? Do you lean towards self-defeat? Do you have trouble believing in yourself? And are you dying to learn how to become the perfect version of you? A you that you dream about? If you answered yes, then you're like me, and this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Journey to Worthy podcast, where we discuss self-esteem, worthiness, and transformation through a gay lens. I'm your host, Jeremy Long, and I want to share my journey with you. Welcome to the Journey to Worthy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Journey to Worthy podcast. This week, we have a very special guest, my good friend, Kit. He is a general practitioner, family doctor, and addiction specialist. So we talk about everything from overall health to interacting with your GP to how the queer community has shifted and changed when it comes to the world of medicine. We even talk about quitting smoking. So tune in this week for a jam-packed episode filled with resources, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Cheers. I am here with uh, one of my very good friends, Kit. Say hello, Kit. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, where are you from originally? I'm from Toronto. Grew up in High Park. What was it that drew you to Vancouver, though? Uh, the first time I, was, I came here, I was about 21. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing pictures of it, or of British Columbia, and the mountains. Mountains, and ocean, the ocean. And yeah, more like lakes, like mountains yeah, and lakes. And yeah. that's always drawn drawn me in. And then I visited when I was about 21, and I just walked around the West End. I stayed at the hostel, the right. International, or whatever it is. On um, Burnaby Street? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And... It just, it was like, you know, why would I live in a place that has like a brutal winter every year (laughs) when it's so beautiful here? It was like May when I visited. So, you know, it's just, it was uh, like right now, just a really beautiful time. Yeah. I love the the climate. I love the mountains and uh, the recreation, all that stuff. And it just, I think there's a really good work, work life balance. I mean, it's sort of a West Coast thing, but that's always appealed to me. And then I have two brothers and both of them have lived here at various times. And when I, uh, for a long time, my older brother and his wife and their kids, they lived here. So mm-hmm. definitely that was a draw. And I used to visit a lot and then was biding my time until I could move here and cool. finally got a chance. Good. Yeah. And so it sounds like activities were kind of like one of the things that led you here. Is that something that sort of drives you in your life a little bit is being able to be active? Yeah, definitely. I I really feel like my own health is best when I have a mix of lots of different things. You know, yeah. So I, I like doing running and I like playing sports. I play in a soccer league and I play basketball and mm-hmm. just doing a whole bunch of different things. And yeah, I like having, you know, time to read and write and mm-hmm. do all kinds of things. So I yeah, have a lot of interest outside of work and, uh, that had been the plan, I guess. Uh, fortunately, I, I spent a lot of time working right now. Right. I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I can't imagine being a doctor and not being busy. <laughs> there's a lot of different, I mean, and I'm a family doctor, so there's a lot of different things that you can do. And it's actually quite a portable and sort of flexible kind of profession where if you want to, you could work three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, especially with everything going on in Vancouver, but, you know, across North America with the overdose epidemic and just mm-hmm. addiction medicine in, in particular, um, there's a lot of work to do. But also I, I got involved with this group here at St. Paul's Hospital, which developed into the, the BC Center on Substance Use. Right. And it's been career wise. I, I don't think I could have picked a, a better group to really be part of. There's just, there's so many developments. It's really, I won't go into everything, but there are a lot of really bright and hardworking people working in all kinds of different directions with research, policy, you know, expanding treatment centers mm-hmm. and, um, you know, access to medications, you name it. There's just a lot going on right here. So it's really, um, it, it's really been uh, an amazing experience to be part of 
uh, something like that. But yeah, also a lot of work going on. Yeah. Right, I can imagine. Yeah, so that's affecting my own kind of work-life balance, I guess, which I'm happy to talk about. But right. Um, anyway, just to say that for sure, I would love to have more free time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's most people in life, especially um, busy practitioners yeah. like yourself. Yeah. That's um, kind of the goal. So if we're, yeah, if we're going to start talking about maybe what you, what you've been up to. So what exactly are you, what is your role here in, in St. Paul's hospital? Uh, so currently I do a couple of different things. I, I did a fellowship here in addiction medicine, uh, three years ago. And for the last, the last two years I've been on staff mm-hmm. as an addiction physician. So we have an inpatient team that does addiction consults for mm-hmm. patients uh, all across the hospital. And we cover actually our service covers about 20 to 25% of the hospital at any given time. So wow. a lot of people from the downtown east side in particular come directly to our hospital for care. And a lot of people who are in admitted to hospital have complex pain and withdrawal needs or, you know, mm-hmm. are wanting to engage in treatment. And so we, we do a lot of, we see a lot of people and follow along while they're in hospital and try to help them connect with, with good management plan. Right. Uh, we also have an outpatient clinic where I work. And that's called the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic at St. Paul's. And I work there about every six weeks or something. I'll do a week there. And a very busy clinic where people can basically just drop in for any reason related to a substance use disorder. Sort of like a continued care where people can follow up. and People can come there for for a period of time. We try to connect them with like permanent care. Okay. So that we're able to really prioritize seeing new people. But the idea is rapid access. The idea is that you can get in pretty much you know, the same day yeah. in order to start or restart a medication or to connect with other services that people aren't waiting, you know, weeks or longer in order to see someone. Cause it's really, it can be life threatening for people not to be on medications or mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it can take time to get into treatment programs. So getting the ball rolling and really helping people when they are uh, motivated for change, it's really important to, to really be there for them when they want to do it. There's a window, right? Like yeah. when people are, you know, thinking in that contemplative stage, I right. think the cycle of yeah, what is that stages of change, stages of yeah. change. Yeah. And there's a contemplative when they right. actually have an opportunity because they're ready at that right. moment, yeah. but that could phase out based on the next few days, the next few months yeah. of their addiction, if they're back into it. That's right. Yeah. And I think with any kind of change, but it's not, not sort of just a linear progression mm. or cyclical thing where you just kind of move from one stage to the next, right? People can move back and forth. Right. And sometimes people become contemplative where they start thinking, about making a change or even preparatory where they decided to make a change and waiting or they're they're thinking about how they're going to do that or they've made sort of preliminary steps to doing that Mm -hmm. but if things don't work out the way that they want it's very easy unfortunately just to fall back into a stage of just saying you know yeah like i tried and it didn't work or you know so Right. And I think just a lot of times I've seen people who we say, we give them that term pre-contemplative as though they don't change because they, they don't want to, but often it's because they're so frustrated at mm-hmm. their, their previous experiences with trying to change and being unsuccessful or their attempts to try to engage with care and finding that they haven't been able to, to get, get resources. You know? Right. I mean, if you try to find an addiction counselor in most places or you try to, you know, try to go to a treatment program or a detox. I wish it was instantaneous and it just doesn't work like that. Right. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge maybe in British Columbia when it comes to access to resources, like you said? There are a whole bunch of different ones. I mean, right now the BC Center on Substance Use is really trying to prioritize access to medications for opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. That's really, I mean, that's what's driving, unfortunately, the overdose epidemic right now. Right. And so the priority is expanding so that more physicians can prescribe methadone or a newer medication called Suboxone. Yeah. Um, Two years ago, 
the Ministry of Health separated the two. So it used to be that you had to have a methadone license in order to prescribe Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Now any physician in BC can prescribe Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are still not familiar with it, but it's possible legally for anyone to prescribe that. Okay. Um, if they've done a bit of training that they can do online. And, um, so very, it's definitely expanded and, and hopefully more people are able to access that, especially in rural areas, remote right. areas where, where people, I've seen people who drive two hours to a methadone clinic every day. And, you know, it's just, it, it, that's a huge hurdle for a lot of people. And there's not a lot of sort of addiction specialized sort of clinics right. out in sub like yeah. rural areas. Like yeah. you mentioned. That's right. So trying to, our own fellowship program has trained, um, uh, probably around 30, 30 to 40 fellows over the past five or six years. Mm-hmm. And, um, some of those people are now working in outlying areas. And in fact, uh, the most recent overdose death or mortality data shows that Fraser Health, I think, actually has the highest overdose mortality wow. uh, by region. So uh, Surrey in particular is a, a currently a huge hotbed. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have a lot of people from our program or from other peop- other programs, like in, in Surrey Memorial Hospital, they have an addiction consult service. They're developing an injectable opioid clinic, wow. um, supervised injection facility. So a lot of things are, are really being focused around Fraser right now because they don't have that same infrastructure that we do in downtown Vancouver. Right. But yeah, certainly across the province and across North America, right? mm. I think there are a lot of different efforts being made. But I would say that the priority right now is starting people on medication because there's such strong evidence that when people are on a medication, it reduces mortality and engages people in, in care. Right. Yeah. What led you into working specifically in addictions or maybe into medicine if you want to take us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to do medicine. I always just had some... I think I had sort of a fairly romantic concept of it, but mm-hmm. I always liked the idea that, that you were able to really work with people and help people to make changes. That, that kind of thing was always very motivating for me. I always really liked science and I yeah. liked leadership and I always did leadership stuff and it just seemed like a really good, really good career choice. And I've been very happy with it. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Like I, I that's good. That's a nice place to be. Yeah. I don't know that I would do anything else well. You know, when I see people working in the business world or something, and I just mm-hmm. have no concept of how to do that. Right. Uh, even in science, like I couldn't do lab medicine or all kinds of things. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm be the same way. I like yeah. working with people. Right. It's about helping. It's yeah. about contributing in yeah. some way, you know, yeah. research. And, and, and it's about getting to know someone's motivation. Right. Mm. And I feel like that's a skill. You certainly need to know a lot of information. You have to be a, a medical expert. So mm-hmm. it takes a lot of, a lot of studying and, you know, there are exams and then you have to really keep up with those, with that knowledge base because it, it evolves so quickly for mm-hmm. uh, so many areas of medicine. So definitely you need to be a medical expert, but I think part of that is also helping people to figure out what people are wanting to do, right? So a lot of times people just come in, there's lots of studies around this, that people come into a doctor's office and they often have sort of an idea of what's, what they think is going on or what they're looking for in terms of treatment or what they don't want in treatment. A lot of people don't mm-hmm. want a medication. They're looking for a specific type of thing, or they're just looking for reassurance that they want a test done to rule out something. And yeah. those are all reasonable concerns. And, you know, not, we wouldn't necessarily be ordering an MRI for every person who has knee pain or a headache or something, right. but it's at least reasonable to talk to someone and try to allay their concerns and say, based on what you're telling me, you know, you don't need this test and, yeah. you know, come back if these things happen. But that most of the time we provide, you can provide a lot of reassurance. Right? right. And that's a huge part of my job as a family doctor is that I see people who have symptoms, physical symptoms all day long. Right. And you sort of, you learn what is concerning, what the red flags are versus what's likely to just be, you know, to, to resolve on its own or be something that's not likely to respond to a medication right. or require, you know, ext- an extravagant workup for that kind of thing. So 
that's uh, that's certainly part of it. So what I found in my medical training was that uh, I saw how frequently people's symptoms were related to substance use. Right. So people come in with heartburn, and then it, you know, lo and behold, it turns out that they're drinking. Right. Often people just want a cure. Just give me a pill, make this go away. Yeah. I don't want the answer to be that I have to stop or cut down on my drinking. Or look right? at my own behaviors. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. oh, geez, you, you know, you mean that my smoking is cough is causing my cough, right? And so often it just, it's a very common thing. They've done studies at somewhere probably around like, you know, a third of all primary care visits are indirectly or directly related to some kind of substance use. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really, very, that's high. it's very high and wow. very common. Yeah. So, you know, sleep disorders, anxiety, depression, you know, not to say that those things are directly caused by substance use, but oftentimes they're made worse by substance use or, you know, frequently, yeah, it may be that. That if someone stops drinking or smoking or doing other things, mm-hmm. even like, you know, marijuana for people who have anxiety, like often those conditions get better or, or just resolve completely. Right. Not always. And not to say that there isn't other things going on. And yeah. this is where, this is why you shouldn't go on WebMD people and <laughs> try to diagnose what you have. Like it really, yeah. it, it's often complicated and it, and it takes, I think, a skilled clinician to help figure out what's going on. And I don't mean to try to boil everything down to just one simple, Oh, just stop doing this. Like there's, there's often more going on. Right. Right. But I just saw that a lot and I got interested in it. And then on a personal level, like just to be brief that uh, I have a family history of, of, uh, addiction. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when I was in, um, uh, you know, when I I was younger, like I started having my own concerns with substance use and addiction. Mm -hmm. And, and then I received some treatment for that. Mm -hmm. And that really, not only was that really helpful for me personally, but also really helped me to see the value and and just the opportunities that were there for, for a physician to be working in addiction medicine Mm -hmm. and how it's really actually a very rewarding area where when somebody is able to stop, although that can be very difficult for some people, but often very, very amazing changes can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly, I mean, in, in some communities where, you know, 12 step groups and other things like that, where again, not everyone has that experience, but for a lot of people, when they stop using a substance or they're able to cut down, they really feel like their quality of life improves. And, yeah. um, and that's, that's really rewarding to see. Yeah. It must yeah. be nice to work in that field because even like, I'm very open about myself being in recovery yeah. and, and so like the challenges that I've overcome, the things that I've learned and other things crop up that mm-hmm. might, you know, that I've learned to sort of deal with after that, because it's not so much just about a substance. It, it ends up being about a behavior, a way, a way of thinking that I've had to sort of like overcome and continue to keep myself in check with. So watching the, you know, the successes must be really cool. Mm-hmm in your line of work, mm-hmm. except are you, a lot of it, is there, are you only in the beginning stages of an interaction with someone or is there longer term follow-up that you end up? It depends up like all, all kinds of things. So at our outpatient clinic or in hospital, often the reality is that we're seeing people who are in hospital because they are injecting drugs frequently or mm. they have, or they're drinking alcohol severely yeah, and having medical complications again, either directly or indirectly related to substance use and mm-hmm. withdrawal. And so often those people are pre-contemplated, but it does happen where someone comes into hospital and we're just continuing their methadone, for example, right? because we're the only service that orders that and they're in stable recovery and they're on methadone. Right. And so it, it can be really, really nice to hear when people are doing well. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's not for me to take credit for that, you know, right. but just to support someone that, that they're doing well and they might have thoughts. Am I ready to come down off this medication? You know, mm-hmm. And there's definitely, it's an ongoing thing for people in their recovery but yes, a lot of people come and see us because they're struggling. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think addiction medicine is, 
developing area of medicine, but very exciting because we are having new information and studies coming out, support for different kinds of medications Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, more resources. And we're definitely advocating for more access to different resources. And so it's nice when you're able to help someone navigate that system or provide them with more understanding of why it is that, that an addiction as we kind of, you know, sort of a lay term for that, Mm -hmm. that, it's related to an underlying brain disorder. So people's brain is built differently and, you know, not to get technical, but like that there's a reason why some people just have a few drinks or whatever the case may be and they can't stop. Yeah. Right. And it's not because they're stupid or because they have some moral failure Mm -hmm. or, you know, a lot of times they're highly motivated to make changes and they're otherwise, you know, very good people with, with all kinds of other skills and talents and friends and family and, you know, all kinds of other things. But, um, they just can't stop using despite yeah. knowing the effect that it's having. Um, and a lot of people need help with that, whether it's a medication, whether it's seeing counselor, mm-hmm. whether it's going to an inpatient program for some right. people. Um, so that's where we get involved and, and there's lots of kind of fancier things we can do to help people. And right. yeah, especially early on, definitely people can need it, but over time, and I used to work at a treatment center in in Ontario mm-hmm. where we would see people for aftercare as well. And even, you know, at six months, nine months, a year, you know, even five years, sometimes, you know, in an outpatient setting where you're still checking in with people and seeing how things go. And for a lot of people, anxiety and, and mood or uh, work stressors, you know, d- different things happen in different stages of life that put their own recovery, you know, in a more precarious place. Mm-hmm. And it's important to be able to, to talk to someone and, and see, maybe this is time where you restart that medication. Maybe this yeah. is time where you intensify the treatment that you're going to, or for people who go to smart meetings or 12 step meetings yeah. that they go to more of them, or they right. consider going to some other kind of, I mean, people sometimes go back to a treatment program, even in recovery, yeah, just because they want to really re-engage with, with a treatment thing, a treatment system that was working for them. Right. So I think it's like, like anything else, the change, it's not just about making that immediate change, but maintaining it. And yeah. that takes a lot of work. I wish that our bodies were like, like a car where you can, you know, I don't know anything about cars, but you, <laughs> you know, you tighten a screw or whatever, right. whatever happens, you know, you go into front oil change yeah. and then you drive out and your car is good to go. Right. Right. And I guess the same thing that the car needs maintenance, but right. in general, it's more than just about fixing something and then, then it, it works. Right. It's uh, ongoing maintenance. Yeah. It's, it's a maintenance thing. Reassessing. Yeah. I think that that's kind of what my, what this podcast really is about too. It's yeah. not just about like fixing a problem. It's mm-hmm. about like an ongoing question, like what's going on for me? What, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. What, what can I shift? What are, I need to look at my behaviors at my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it's like a constant reassessment, which then can lead to change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it takes a huge amount of personal work and growth mm-hmm. and uh, insight and recognizing the things that are triggers for you to use substances or, or mm. triggers for you to, you know, to feel bad about yourself or get anxious or, yeah. um, the places, you know, situations that we all put ourselves in sometimes that are not healthy for us. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, it's a lifelong process. Right. And I think yeah. that people who are really able to maintain change are frequently involved in, in an act of maintenance of, of yeah. something. So I, I'm going to go back, back to my car analogy because it's probably not a great analogy, <laughs> but you should take your car in every year. Like I, I get letters <laughs> to do and I, I forget but otherwise your car breaks down, right? right? And I heard someone say, talk about how, you know, all the lights will come on. And like one time he just, he waited till all the lights, you know, it was like the maintenance light and this, and oh, that, yeah. you know, yeah. and they, all these things came on 
And then his car broke down, right? And it's like you have all if these you wait warnings, till the end, right? Yeah, yeah, you have all these warnings along the way. And you can't go and, backwards, right? Yeah. So you know, recognizing what are those warning signs for you? Right. Can I share my sort of favorite personal metaphor Please around do. recovery? Yeah. yeah. I, I like to think of it as a, a garden. I've heard it shared like that, where Ooh. weeds grow, and mm. that mm-hmm. um, that you know, weeds. You can do all you want on any given day to remove the weeds at hand and tend to the garden and water and, you know, do, do whatever and let the other things flourish. And, okay. you know, no disrespect to weeds, like people grow weed gardens, but, um, <laughs> the typically weeds just overgrow and, you know, they, they take over. Right. Mm. But even if you're doing all that work for one day, it's not going to keep weeds from growing for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Right. It's something that you have to tend to that garden on an ongoing basis. Right. Yeah. And so I really like that. I like that metaphor that you just, you have to do work every day, but you know, and the more work you do on a gradual basis, a day to day basis, the less work you're needing to do where you have to do some overhaul and spend the whole day pulling out weeds, right? Yeah. You just, it's just one in the morning and, and that's it. Yeah. You know? And I think that I've kind of talked about that with some people It's sort of like a daily practice, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's a spiritual practice for you or, you know, meditation, mm-hmm. or it's just sort of an ongoing self-discovery process, but it's still an ongoing Thing. It's not just like, oh, I did this, you know, I graduated university, therefore, you know, my brain is good for the next 10 years. Right. I need to keep challenging and growing and exploring and seeking, right. you know? Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people, we like to, to think that we sort of can plateau or we sort of achieve something and then that's it, right? right. That you've attained that skill or you've attained that thing, you know, you work out and you reach your goal weight and then you're good. Right? Yeah. You can ease no. off and you can start eating what you want. You don't have to exercise, yeah. you know, do all these things that you did to, to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, a lot of people are very, they're able to do that. You know, they have the capacity to, to make a change, mm-hmm. right. To go back to the gym or do all these things. You can like, I think that it can be very easy to feel motivated and then to, to do that. And if you stick with it, that's hard to do. Yeah. But then I think there's a very human capacity for that to become boring. Yeah. And to want to say, okay, now I've achieved this thing. I don't need to do the rest of these things anymore. Right. And people get bored with like a repetitive, repetitive cycle. Yeah. But unfortunately our bodies just don't work that way. Our minds don't work that way. No, You know, it's really something that, that just needs to have a continual renewal or dedication to, to practice. Like Mm -hmm. you're saying, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, maybe shifting gears just a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I feel like this is getting very Dr. Phil. So I'm happy (laughs) to get back to Dr. Um, Phil. I'm curious how, how much of the queer community maybe right. you're ending up serving or yeah. um, interacting with and how sort of what are the biggest issues when it comes to maybe addictions or substance mm-hmm. or I don't know, anything in that realm that sort of you've noticed or um, that's at the forefront maybe in current research mm-hmm. that you want to talk about? Sure. Yeah. Um, and this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, not only because because I'm gay myself, and a lot of my friends are GLBTQ, mm-hmm. et cetera. And also because I happen to live in the West End in Vancouver. And right. we see it's a, you know, a, a sort huge, of like our gay village. Here yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So a, a huge community, you know, I think one of the biggest LGBTQ communities in the world. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really nice because a lot of people are aging. And so definitely there are lots of studies that show that a lot of people, a lot of physicians don't identify that their patients are not heterosexual or, um, you know, cisgendered or, or whatever else, you know, um, they don't even have that conversation. I don't know if this is the most up-to-date research, but like one study I read said something like 80% of physicians, 
or 80% of GLBTQ people don't identify their sexuality or their, uh, their gender to, to their physician. Oh, wow. But, it, but maybe the, the inverse is true. I, don't, I, I haven't read that for a while. But okay. anyway, the point being that it, frequently that's something that doesn't get discussed you know, at medical assessment. It doesn't end up being like a priority right. to even bring it up. Yeah. Even though it's important and there's very, there's some very specific health considerations mm-hmm. or things, you know, trends in the community that it's important to identify. And I think a lot of people prefer to have a provider who understands those things or identifies, you know, as being part of that community themselves. And, and so that way you're not having some person shocked when you talk about going to a bathhouse or something like that. Right. It's like, okay, well, let's talk about how you can do these things. So, you know, Vancouver, again, is very lucky to have a lot of resources, right. but certainly that's not the case for a lot of communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have clinics in Vancouver, Spectrum Health, the Health Initiative for Men that I yeah. know you've been involved yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a whole bunch, you know, there's a couple of community health centers, Three Bridges in particular has yeah. a particular LGBTQ and transgender health program. And substance focus. Yeah, substance that's right. Based. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of great intersection, I think, for um, people with substance use disorders in our community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, certainly there are a lot of trends, I think, like, you know, to say briefly that that substance use disorder or sorry, I should say substance use is yeah. a big part of the, the community. It is. Uh, and I, I mean, we could go into the socio sociology of all these things. I'm not, right. I'm not an expert in that, but I think that there's, I've read lots of studies that, that talk about these so-called syndemics of mm. all these different factors. So, um, that often, uh, people who identify as LGBTQ experience more uh, childhood traumas, mm-hmm. um, you know, difficulties with coming out in that experience, not being accepted. Any kind of minority stress. Yeah, really. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, safety issues. Yeah. And then also, also things related to just the internal process of coming out, right? It's often not just like, like you realize it suddenly it's, it's a process yeah. and, and learning it's an ongoing emotional. Yeah. I mean, I, I think most people can identify with, it's not like you just go to a gay bar one day and you're just like, Oh, Hey, this is like, you know, although it's great if people feel comfortable like that from mm-hmm. day one, yeah. but for a lot of people, I think especially older people who grew up in a, in a different uh, generation where, where it wasn't safe, you know, and it wasn't, no. it, you, you have to try to pass to yeah. sort of avoid being right. identified. Yeah. Yeah. Which right. is changing quite a bit, I think. Yeah. Depending on where you are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like, I mean, I think a much broader discussion and I'm not, certainly not an expert, so I'll stick to kind of what I know, <laughs> right, but right. that, that certainly a lot of people use drugs and alcohol as a way to help them cope with those feelings, to mm-hmm. cope with the experience, or just because I think drug use is, is more prevalent in a lot of, you know, club and bar culture yeah. in the GLBT slash clubbing community, which are kind of one and the same, right? Yeah. Um, like a lot of straight people go to gay bars and stuff because there's, it's just, you know, that's where the scene is, right? Yeah. And, it, I think it's, and it's sort of in front of you. It's a learn. Right. It can be learned, right. you know, and maybe for me, like, I feel like I learned how to do it from just right. being where I was exposed yeah. to it. Yeah. But I also had some pre-existing, you know, core beliefs and some other self-esteem stuff that mm-hmm. led me down a path of, yeah, I totally want to use this drug to escape. Definitely. Yeah. So it's a complex discussion, but there, there were some original studies that were done I think in like the seventies and eighties or sixties maybe. And what they would do, these are what we would call like a convenience sample from a research perspective mm-hmm. where people that were the researchers would go in to a gay bar or, you know, bar that was identified as having GLBTQ people there, which mm-hmm. at the time was just called gay and lesbian. You know, yeah. That's just kind of what yeah. people called it. And they would just ask gay and lesbian people going to a bar and they would ask them about their substance use or, you know, the rates of what used to be called, 
you know, alcoholism or right. addiction, um, or sometimes it's called like a substance dependence. Those are kind of somewhat outdated terms. And, okay. You know, normally like technically we would use the term substance use disorder, which I won't go into, but just, you know, counts for a whole bunch of different, different kind of behaviors and, and things that, that speak to having this brain disorder. Right. right? And cravings and things like that. But they would ask people. And of course, if you go to a gay bar or any bar, you're going to find that people hanging out in a bar are going to be more likely to have alcohol use. Right. And more likely. And to that's have the it. only place they were asking. Right. And that's, that's what they did. So they ended up saying, oh, you know, 50% of all gay people are alcoholics. Right. Right. Because that's at their convenience sample. Right. That's what they were reporting. And. Um, bit of a skewed study. Yeah, absolutely. And those things got perpetuated for a while, but I think over the past 20 years, there've been a number of bigger studies where they do these things called systematic reviews where someone will go into a literature search and, okay. and actually quite a, a kind of standardized way mm-hmm. and identify all these different papers. And they found that although substance use is certainly higher, it remains higher as far as we can tell by, by broader surveys mm-hmm. in Canada and the U S that it's, probably far more closer to the general population. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, but definitely higher. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that, that GLBTQ people are using, are using substances more Mm -hmm. and, and also certain substances like say cocaine or club drugs like GHB or other things that those are more prevalent. Right. Yeah. Or smoking rates. Like these are all things that are a big part of that culture, our community. Are you seeing a little bit more of this sort of um, crystal meth chemsex culture? Have you come into contact with a lot of that? I have, certainly. Um, And at St. Paul's, I mean, I should say that a lot of the majority of people that I see are, I mean, again, without without assessing it Mm -hmm. really regularly, but just, I mean, I guess we do assess it. We sort of, we tend to identify when someone identifies as LGBTQ. Right. Um, but for the most part, I would say we're treating people who are heterosexual okay. and cisgendered and live in the downtown east side and injecting drugs. Certainly there's a lot of crystal meth use. There's a lot of stimulant induced psychosis, right. but frequently it does happen. And I, I, we do consults for the, the inpatient psychiatry units as well. And so we see people, um, who are, you know, in a bathhouse uh, setting or in a club setting mm-hmm. and using definitely involved in the chemsex, uh, chemsex culture and come in and they're in GHP withdrawal or they're, yeah. in, you know, they have crystal meth induced psychosis and that yeah. usually resolves in a day or two, but clearly, you know, it's, it's significant enough that they need to be hospitalized and certified and everything. So it's, um, yeah, it's very severe for a lot of people. So I think that it seems to be maybe a little bit more exposed, um, whether it's in media or people are just seem to be talking about it a little bit more. And maybe it's because I've been exposed to certain health clinics like Health Initiative for Men who are specifically working towards, you know, making this a conversation that's more, more easy for people to have, especially if they are engaged in those kind of behaviors. Um, is there any kind of uh, specific I guess, education base that you think is really going to make a change when it comes to people, I guess, like a harm reduction mm-hmm. in that sort of culture? Yeah, it's a, a good question. I think for a lot of people, and I'm glad you use the term harm reduction because I, I think it's important to acknowledge that for a lot of people that their goal may not be abstinence. Absolutely. And that, and that as a physician, it's not my, I mean, certainly I can tell people 
that yes, of course it's going to be healthier for them to abstain from everything and eat well mm-hmm. and, you know, go to the gym every day yeah. <laughs> and stop but smoking. That's not right? for everyone. And, but also no one needs to be told that no. we all know these things, right? but I think the reality is that people, everyone is allowed to make choices about their health. Yeah. And so a lot of what I do is assess someone's stage of change, but also what their goals of treatment are. Right. And so if they are wanting to cut down they may say, yeah, you know, I find when I, when I drink, I can have a couple of drinks and then it's fine. But if I have more than about three drinks, then I'm kind of off to the races. And then that's when I start doing math. That's when I go to the bathhouse. Right. That's when I'm having unprotected sex or, you know, like that's when I'm getting into trouble, yeah. blacking out, yeah. whatever the case may be. Um, and so maybe their goal is just to reduce their drinking so that they don't, they don't kind of hit that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if they say, yeah, you know, actually I feel like my meth use is, is good. You know, like right. I find I am able to do it once a week or something and I haven't had any concerns, but I guess the main thing for me is that I don't always have condoms at hand or something. Although right. I don't, I don't know how that would happen in a bathhouse, but that, like whatever the case may be, yeah. right. That we just, you identify what their own, their own goals for care are and maybe yeah. just helping them connect with safer resources that, that that may be, you know, enough for them. And maybe that's all they want to do. Mm-hmm. There's, there, I can tell someone until I'm blue in the face what is the healthiest thing for them mm-hmm. to do. But if they don't want those things or they don't want a medication or they want to go to this treatment program, then it's not really worth worthwhile for me to go into all that. Well, it ends up being redundant and not really helpful. Well, just if they're not ready for it or they yeah. don't want it, then yeah. that's fine. Then they have that right. right. I often say, well, just to where, you know, here's kind of your menu of options if you were interested in any of these things, you're always yep. welcome to come back right. or whatever. And it, it's an ongoing thing for some people. Right. I think for a lot of people with substance use that they they may not identify their use as problematic right away or even mm-hmm. when we're seeing them. But over time, if they are having consequences of that use, they may change or they may find that once upon a time they were able to control their use and then they lose control of that. And that's the point where often they are more motivated to make a change. Right. A lot of people are more motivated for abstinence and they may say, I know I can't just have two I know that I have to stop right. or that, and you know, even though they wish that they could have two, that for a lot of people, that's just not, not a realistic happen. goal yeah. based on, you know, their own experience right. and that kind of thing. But certainly we want to work with someone around what they, their goals are. And if they want to try that, mm-hmm. we want to support them. Right. And there are some medications that like, for example, for alcohol, there's a medication called naltrexone that has some pretty good evidence to help reduce heavy drinking rather oh. than, and reduce cravings rather than stopping drinking altogether. Right. So often people will try that and it helps them meet their goal of just having one or two drinks instead of six or seven or something. Right. But then specifically around chemsex culture, I think Vancouver in particular and a lot of other communities have some excellent resources and yeah. public health, yeah. public health campaigns about informing people of risks and like health initiative for men has done some really They're great amazing. things. Yeah. I'm sure you can talk in more, you know, more details, but I've certainly seen, ads and, and, you know, I've seen some of their videos that they do. And I think they have a great approach to, to things that make it very accessible for people mm-hmm. and, and kind of fun to watch, but also that it, it shows that, you know, this is a significant health concern for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They've done a lot around, um, just knowing that it's not about necessarily changing, but it making it more comfortable for people to talk about what they're already doing because then it's not behind closed doors. There's a campaign. It was hottest at the start. So, or it's always hottest at the start. Mm-hmm. And it just makes it clear that like, sometimes people aren't going to use condoms. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are going to be on drugs when they have sex. Mm-hmm. Let's not focus on the problem with that. Let's focus on like, let's let people come and talk about it afterwards and right. see what possible options are for them. Right. Yeah. And just making things safer. And again, mm-hmm. it's not, I'm not like the, 
you know, the, uh, the police no, to no. tell people how to live their lives. Right. Yeah. Um, but certainly making steps to offer people ways to make what they, the choices they're going to make to have them be as safe as possible so that they're not overdosing, that they're not acquiring HIV yes. and syphilis yeah. or, you know, other things that are out there, even if they, they could be on prep, but you know, they're still at risk of chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and those are all treatable things, yeah. but it's important they're getting tested and all this. So there's, there's lots of ways that I think public health does such a great job at reducing harms mm-hmm. for people who are choosing to do harmful things or potentially harmful things. Or and that's okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has the right to make choices that they want in their life. It's your body. Yeah. It, like if you smoke, I mean, well, actually your secondhand smoke will affect me, but <laughs> if you, if you do G, like my body is processing that, you know, yeah. but certainly I think we all like Vancouver is a place where people really care about one another. Yeah. There are a lot of people working really hard in, um, in overdose prevention efforts and all kinds of other efforts. And so it's a, a really wonderful place to work and get to see all these people working hard and to see people engaging in care and, you know, making healthier choices for themselves is great. But also I think we all respect that, that those people, everyone has the right to autonomy, make their, their own choices yeah. about how they want to live yeah. their life. Yeah. I really have a lot of respect for that. I like that actually too, because it's not about I, I don't know what, what's good for anyone. Like mm-hmm. I'm in recovery, but it doesn't right. mean that you have to be. If right. you can shift gears and, you know, yeah. maybe you're smoking a little bit more weed, but right. you're not doing meth anymore. Like, good for you. Yeah. Like, that's fine. Right. Uh, well, I'm just curious, what do you think, or is there any specific issue health-wise or when it comes to medicine or addictions that's specifically affecting the queer community or that maybe needs to be changed or focused on in the next coming years? Sure. Yeah. It's a great idea or a great question. I think that there's always so many things that I think the, the LGBTQ community could do to improve mm-hmm. you know, um, because there is so much harm there. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, you know, there's always people coming out, right. And that I think a lot of people are needing support around that experience and everything. So targeting young people, targeting mm-hmm. people who are newly out or people who are transitioning, you know, that these are particular, particular life challenges that they need that support. Or a lot of people, again, with physicians or other healthcare providers don't acknowledge or don't report that they're in say LGBTQ relationship, Mm -hmm. but that there are issues like domestic violence within, you know, lesbian couples or something where Mm -hmm. like that something that, that like a lot of other issues in our community kind of flies under the radar. right? Right. So I think there's all kinds of opportunities to promote health and improve health for people in our community. And this may be kind of a boring answer and it's not very glamorous, but the reality <laughs> is that when it comes to substance use disorder, that as much effort as being put into opioid the opioid crisis right now with good reason, yeah. um, where we talk a lot about chemsex culture and everything and, and with good reason, that the most common substances used and the most that the biggest cause of, of disease and mortality and hospitalizations are smoking and drinking. Wow. So I can talk about some, and, and cannabis use, I mean, like not so much for harms, although there are a lot of harms associated with it, but I think those cannabis, uh, tobacco, and alcohol are these substances that are in Vancouver, at least very commonplace for a lot of people. Yeah. Right? And they're just, it's just this kind of, it's like drinking coffee, right? It's Which the is, norm. It's just yeah, every of, corner. What you do, right? Yeah, yeah. You smoke weed X number of times a day or a week. Yeah. You drink, you know, and, and again, like a lot of other places in the world that, that often for a lot of people, they do that without, without concern. You know, yeah. it's not causing problems for them. It's contributing to this, you know, sense of well being and they feel like that's, 
that is how they want to live their life. Like mm. who would, who would make a change if they didn't feel like there were, were any yeah. downside? Exactly. And in fact, if they were enjoying that experience, right? Yeah. Um, but the reality is, so we have a set of Canada low risk drinking guidelines okay. that recommend that, uh, and these is just obviously very generalized, but yeah. they recommend for men, no more than 15 drinks a week or three drinks on any given day for women. It's 10 drinks a week or two drinks on any given day. Okay. And, uh, also non-drinking days are also recommended at least once a week so that people mm. don't develop what's called tolerance where you need more to achieve the same effect or withdrawal symptoms if you stop drinking. Right. So those would be the recommendations. And for people drinking more than that, then that would be considered high risk drinking and mm -hmm. associated alcohol is actually associated with a lot of adverse health outcomes, including, yeah. uh, gastrointestinal diseases, cardiovascular disease, uh, I think it's been estimated something like three to 4% of cancers are, are related to alcohol use disorder, especially like head and neck cancers, yeah. things like that. So, um, certainly alcohol is not, no amount of alcohol is safe. And that's a direct quote from, uh, an epidemiologist, Tim Stockwell at, okay. at the University of Victoria. Right. But I know there's a lot of this sort of a generalized belief or sort of widespread, um, belief that one or two drinks is actually healthy for you, especially red wine. I know there was and, some kind of article about that a yeah. while ago and everyone's like, I, I'm supposed to drink white right. wine. It's I good for me. This, right. And yeah, I mean, there's probably some things, <clears throat> but, but on the whole, and I won't go into the specifics, but, but Tim Stockwell, who's an epidemiologist who specializes in population health and mm -hmm. really understands statistics. And he went through all these studies and actually found that there was a huge selection bias because uh, a lot of times the people, uh, well, I won't go into the details, but they were including like alcoholics and people who didn't drink and those kind of things. So oh. it skews all the results. And when he actually went through it with a fine tooth comb, he concluded that there's really no safe amount of drinking. So, right. um, if, you know, if someone said, well, what's the best way to take care of myself? It's like, don't drink, don't smoke. But if you are going to drink, then those are the recommendations for mm -hmm. lower risk drinking right. based on a lot of, uh, population health data over time. For we actually, uh, the CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, mm -hmm. they developed the low risk cannabis guidelines last year. Okay. And so there are a number of different recommendations there. And the biggest one is that cannabis, although again, it's widespread for a lot of people and yeah. a lot, most people use it without problem, that it's not without concern. And the New York Times had an article last week as well that commented on the concerns of cannabis that people just don't talk about or don't acknowledge or don't, don't, uh, don't know about. But it can increase your risk, especially for young people, increase risk of developing psychosis mm. or it can unmask, you know, an underlying psych psychotic disorder. Right. It can affect anxiety, depression. Obviously, if you're smoking it, it affects your respiratory health. Yeah. Synthetic cannabinoids, uh, which include things like it's more in the States they do this, like spice or K2. It's called these are it's like synthetic things. Okay. Or for in Vancouver, we don't really use that much because obviously there are a million dispensaries around, but yeah. people use higher potency cannabinoids. So, you know, hash oil and yeah. a shatter, which is like up to 90% cannabis. Wow. And people are smoking this or uh, people vaporize it. People use e-cigarettes to vape or other vapes, uh, vaporizers to, to use cannabinoids. And you can get really high potency cannabinoids in these, you know, e-liquids that people vape with. Okay. And that that can cause high, high levels of THC, which can cause psychosis for people. Wow. So there definitely are some concerns. We see people, you know, especially on like 
420 yeah. people come in and they get, you know, like people just green out, out or whatever you want to call it, you know, yeah. and it's like, that's a thing. So, you know, it's something to be aware of. And again, if you're smoking it, that there are edibles or other ways that you can do to make it safer from a, a general point of view. Right. And, but you can check out the guidelines for sort of complete details. It's, and it's also recommended that people under the age of 25 really avoid or limit their cannabis exposure because your brain continues to develop until, until the age of 25. Right. So if you can wait that long, people, then hold brain, on, yeah, hold on, up, hold everyone. on, peeps, then your brain will be the most developed. And then again, this is very not, not glamorous and there's nothing exciting about saying to quit smoking, but yeah. the reality is that, that smoking cessation, so stopping smoking or even cutting down is like the best thing you can do for your health if you smoke. And I used to smoke, I get it, it's hard yeah, to quit. Me I too. tried in a long time mm-hmm. and it's really tough to stop, try, tough to cut down, you know, especially if you're drinking or doing other things that you associate yeah. with it. Yeah. But, you know, if you're motivated to make a change for your health, then the good news is you don't have to just quit cold turkey. That's like the hardest and the worst way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of different approaches. There is nicotine replacement and some very good data that shows that actually a combination of, of say, the patch and the gum yeah. is as effective as Champix right. uh, or Veraniclean. And that's and there's about a 50% quit rate. So pretty good chances with just combining nicotine patch and nicotine gum yeah. or an inhaler or something like that. There's other medications, including Champix, that we can use as well. And you can even combine that with nicotine replacement. So there's all these studies that are coming out that show that, that uh, quit rates are improving. Okay. with different types of medications. People also use e-cigarettes as right. a way of harm reduction, but also as a way of, of stopping smoking sometimes. Yeah. And it's not the nicotine so much that is a problem, although like any stimulant, it's probably having some cardiovascular effect, as yeah. does caffeine, for example. Right. But that it's not the nicotine itself, it's the smoking, the combusting of tobacco okay. that has most of the respiratory and other cardiovascular diseases and toxic exposures and all those things. So, so even the e-cigarettes, just a major improvement from definitely, smoking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of people who use e-cigarettes also use conventional cigarettes, and the real the benefits don't really become uh, evident unless you are using just e-cigarettes or if you're using just nicotine replacement on its own gotcha. and not nicotine replacement plus smoking. So um, if you continue to smoke, there's still, no matter how much, even just one cigarette a day, there's still lots of other um, uh, health risks. Mm-hmm. So definitely smoking cessation is recommended. Right. And um, they've, there are lots of studies on this, but it's been shown that quit rates are better when people just quit outright. You just pick a quit date you know, get some support with medication or whatever, pick a quit date, say in a week, start the medication yeah. and then keep smoking for a few, few more days till your quit date and then stop. That works so much better than just trying to cut down gradually Absolutely. over time or saying, yeah. I'm going to wait until I'm, you know, my, my job stress is less. It's just like, there's never going to be a good time when you're not going to want to smoke. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I haven't smoked in 10 years. Like I want a cigarette, yeah. you know, and that's not going to change. So you just have to make peace with that and just say, yeah, of course I want to smoke. I want to drink whatever, but it's not good for me. I really want to live a healthy life. Yeah. I'm motivated to, you know, live my best life. Hashtag Oprah. That if you're motivated for that, you know, there's like, you'll save money. You'll, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's it's so many health benefits that. that start like the minute you stop smoking. Yeah. You know, your, yeah. your cardiovascular health, respiratory health, all these things improve. Yeah. You'll extend your lifespan by years. You know, you won't end up on an oxygen tank, hopefully. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that would be my recommendation. Awesome. Yeah. I read Alan Carr's easy way to quit smoking. Yeah. And for me, it's about mindset. Like yeah. I needed to be in the right place where I realize I'm not sacrificing something. Yeah. I'm actually choosing a better way oh, for me, great. a better way of it. life. 
Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was the nicotine patch. Yeah. It, it took me, took the cravings of withdrawal away. Right. Yeah. The nicotine patch just took the cravings mm-hmm. right away. And, but what I found was I had to stay on it for a couple of months. You know, yeah. if I just tried to go on it for a few days or a week or two and went off of it, the cravings came back. So right. it was really a gradual thing. For me, I bought, here's a, here's a little pro tip, <laughs> uh, save money. All of the patches is three strengths, seven milligrams. 14 milligrams, 21 milligrams. They all cost the same. If you buy a box of, you know, name brand oh. or whatever. So you just buy a box of the big one. Yeah. And what I did was I would just cut them in half after a while. And then oh. I cut them in quarters, you know, uh, in, in BC, you can call, I think it's two one one or it's eight one one. One of those two, there's like a, a government number you can call a nurses. Line? It's something I, I can't I remember. I should know this. I think it's eight one one two. Anyway, you can call and you can basically get three months of, either nicotine replacement or either Zyban or Champix, one of those two mm-hmm. medications, or I should use the, the generic names, Bupropion and Varenclean. And if you can get a three month supply of any one of those modalities. So if you there want, you, you know, so there you can save some money. There's also uh, in Vancouver, Vancouver general hospital has a smoking clinic that's run by Vancouver coastal health. And that's run by a colleague of mine, Milan Kara. Dr. Kara uh, has really revolutionized the smoking clinic. Awesome. And so if you're, if you're motivated to quit, I would give them a call. It's self-referral and you go in, you can get the Cadillac treatment and, um, mm. you know, hopefully you'll be successful, but everyone needs support. It's hard to do something on your own. It's hard yeah. to do something yeah. without, with just willpower, like cold Turkey, just don't work. Yeah. It's just not work. That's yeah. a really good point. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I didn't know that, that there was that many services available or resources. And this is a problem, I think, going into anything, whether, whether it's medical, whether it's um, uh, mental health, whether it's um, you know emotional health. It's all about like not knowing what's out there, what's available to you. And sometimes it just takes asking questions, being willing to look. Uh, first being able to face, maybe I need to change something. What, what can I do? Like, and then going out there and asking for help, mm-hmm. asking for, you know, for support. Cause Absolutely. a lot of people don't have that. Right. And unfortunately, um, a lot of family physicians don't have necessarily the same knowledge. And, um, you know, I did a whole fellowship in addiction medicine. Mm-hmm. I work full time, like, if, you know, and I'm connected with this community. Yeah. I, I know all these resources, but that, that that's not the average not everyone physician. Knows. So, um, what's important is knowing where to access it, this information. So if your family doctor doesn't know, you can, you can Google the BC center on substance use. It's bccsu.ca. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of different resources or you can ask your family doctor, you can say, Oh, check out the bccsu website. And for example, they could call us. They have, we have a thing called the race line that physicians can call for advice we have a rapid access addiction clinic. Anyone who wants help with smoking or anything else, come to the rack mm-hmm. in St. Paul's Hospital. You can book an appointment or you can just show up and we'll see you as soon as we can. And um, physicians can call St. Paul's Hospital, the addiction physician on call. So there are different ways, and I, I'm not suggesting everyone just call switchboard because <laughs> um, it has to be a physician to make the call to get gotcha. that support, but that any physician can potentially get those resources. So if you see your family doctor and they don't know, then you can now tell them, oh, well, I, I heard that here are some ways that you can get a hold of that. Um, no matter where you're listening from, guarantee that there are some resources around. So, right. you know, just be savvy. And I think that's another great point if I can share as a physician that I think it's a good point for everyone to really take an active role in your own care. Yeah. Um, and especially if you're frustrated with, you know, that your physician doesn't know something or you can't get in right away or other things. I'll tell you as a family physician, it's a very difficult job and that there are a lot of different 
a lot of different responsibilities and, and knowledge base and stuff that you have to have. So family doctors are not perfect people. Mm. Um, and I think it's rather than getting frustrated and saying, well, you know, this is, this is, you know, BS, like I, I'm just not going to go or whatever mm-hmm. is, is you can inform your family doctor about what you want, what you're looking for here. I did this research. Can you make a referral to this place? You know, here, um, can you tell me more about this? Can you prescribe this medication that I found out about or something? And, you know, I'm a family doctor. When someone comes in and they have a plan like that, unless it's unsafe or there's something else that that I need to learn about, or if I already know and I just need to have that discussion with them, I love it when people take a really active role Mm -hmm. in their own care because it's, it shows that they're, they're trying to learn. They're trying to make a change. They're looking for help with how to do that in, in, uh, in the best way possible. Right. And as a practitioner, don't you, you sort of have an ethical responsibility to explore something that a patient brings up to you. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, certainly, yeah. I mean, if somebody says, well, what about this? You know, of course you want to talk to them, yeah. but you know, if it's, well, I have knee pain, I need an MRI, right? right. Then like, so part of our role is we're, we're sort of stewards for the healthcare system. Right. You want to help navigate properly. Yeah, I would say, well, let's do an x-ray. That's yeah. that's a cheap and easy test, right? Yeah. And if the x-ray shows something that warrants an MRI, right. Right. we'll book you for an MRI. That's great. In the meantime, let's talk about what else could be doing that. Well, let's do a physical exam, right? So it doesn't need to just be, okay, sure, let's just refer you to an orthopedic surgeon, right? right? If I just referred you to an orthopedic surgeon and had, you know, without an indication, like they would just look at my name and be like, ah, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, you know? Right. And it would be unnecessary. But... For example, there's other things, maybe seeing a sports medicine doctor for your knee pain or something. So yeah, I think definitely learning to navigate the healthcare system can be frustrating, but it's also, I think, a variable, very valuable tool. And just to recognize that, yes, our healthcare system is not perfect. And of course, there's ways to improve it, but to make the most of it and to help your physician help you sometimes, you know, you can do some legwork too and and that that can be really helpful and and physicians, maybe you're going to be teaching them something that they don't know about and Mm -hmm. that could help you help their other patients, right? So yeah, yeah. and I think hopefully if you do that, your physicians are going to be really open and appreciative to that approach and aren't just going to sort of get defensive or something like that. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to it's you know, about asking questions. Yeah, and not everyone has great experiences with their, their family doctors. And if, if you don't feel like you're getting the care that proper care, then you know, I encourage people to, to look around for other options. I know it's hard to find a family doctor, but yeah. if you're not happy with the care, by all means you're welcome to, to look elsewhere. Great. I yeah. really like that. I appreciate you say uh, sharing that with the audience because I think that people don't always know how much power they have mm-hmm. and how much ability like you're you are very capable of um, you know, creating a health that you are looking for. Like mm-hmm. you, you can dictate what's supposed to happen in your body, in your life, and you've got more options than you know. Yeah. And yeah. finding a good family doctor, it, it's, it can be a process. Yeah. You know? And when you, when you find someone that you really connect with and mm-hmm. you're going to trust them and then you're going to tell them what's really going on. And then you're going to trust when they uh, recommend something that you're, you're hopefully will be more likely to follow through and take it. Right. right. They've done studies where if you just go to the family, a walk-in clinic and you report some symptom and they give you a script, most people don't take their medications. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even fill their scripts. So it's like, what are we doing all day long? Right. 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 And take I think action in your own. Yeah. A better way is, is if you can find a physician who really is going to get a sense of what you want to do about that. Right. You know, and right. also if you trust that they say, yeah, you need to take this medication. I recommend this medication. You're going to take it because you say, I like this person. I believe them. I trust that, that they have, you know, they, they understand what's really going on and that they know what they're talking about. Right. And if you don't have that experience that I understand it's a challenge. I wish that everyone in our, in the whole world had, access to good medical care, but yeah, be savvy and take an active role. And, and hopefully, you know, often you can get in with a doctor
doctor if you have a partner or if you've got a family member or something yeah. you're seeing someone. Um, most doctors, I think, will be open to taking on someone if they feel like that person is going to be appropriate, you know, and I, yeah. I, that's a that's a big qualifying kind of word. But yeah. just like if someone's going to be like fairly straightforward in order to to um, provide care for, yeah. they will probably be more likely to do that. Is that fair or, or legal or ethical or whatever? That's a very good discussion. It's another discussion. You know, but at the same time, like, yeah, I think if you go into someone's office yelling, like, they probably would just get defensive and say, I'm, you know, I'm practices full or whatever. Yeah. If, if you go in and you just say, this is my medical history, you know, this is kind of what I'm looking for or whatever. Yeah. I think a lot of physicians are, are open to that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. But I can't speak for everyone and no. family physicians can direct your hate mail to, uh, <laughs> to, to me. Yeah. I, 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 I just, um, <coughs> I, I guess I'm saying that because I hear so many patients that I see share their experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I know that, that that's frustrating for a yeah. lot of people. And I don't want to, I don't want to say otherwise because that's sort of, you know, belittling of that, that impression. I will just say from the other side of the, the chair or the, t you know, the table or whatever, yeah. the exam table, that it's a, it's a very tough job, you know, and I wish, I think a lot of family doctors would work more or they would take on more people or they would have more time to work people up if we could. And that there are a lot of challenges in our system that are, are really tough to navigate. Right. Most family doctors, I think, are very bright, hardworking, very compassionate people. Yeah. I've met thousands of them. You know, I've been to school with hundreds of people and that, um, you know, most of them are very well-meaning people who, who go into this because they really care about people. Yeah. And there are, there are lots of reasons why people have a hard time accessing right. uh, good care. So. I appreciate that. I yeah. think the audience will appreciate hearing Good. that from yeah. your perspective. Great. So we were talking about how you as a person, as a patient mm -hmm. can help your, your physician or other people to learn more about LGBTQ health resources. And, Cause we realize that not everyone lives on Davie street or on church street or wherever else. Right. And there's actually in Canada, we have a primary care handbook for LGBTQ people that's just being written right now. Oh, wow. And I'm actually involved because I'm doing a chapter on substance use disorder, which is how Jeremy and I got talking about this whole topic in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can read my chapter, which has some of the things that I talked about here, but more importantly, it has a lot of other topics as well. And, you know, in terms of uh, medications for transitioning for transgender people wow. or, um, you know, resources for all kinds of health health issues related to LGBTQ health. So, and it's something that anyone can read, you mm -hmm. know, certainly uh, hopefully it would be of interest for anyone, but also something to, to let your physician know about and say, Hey, there's this handbook that's just being published probably next year or so, mm -hmm. you know, check it out. The first edition is about 15 years old. Um, and also has some good resources, but a lot of it's fairly outdated. So I would just say, you know, there's this thing coming out and you can check it out. Um, this is what I read here and here's a chapter, you know, where it talks about this and I'm wondering about this treatment or I'm wondering about right, that or I'm right. wondering if I can get a referral to see this person for, you know, for the surgery or whatever mm -hmm. the case mm -hmm. may be, you know. So there are, there are lots of different, different ways you can get involved, but I definitely just want to put in a plug for that chapter. I don't have any, I'm not getting any like compensation for it or whatever. Right, right. Just putting out the, the information because I, and I, the reason I wrote it, this chapter anyway, is because I really care about this topic and I wanted right. a chance to help promote the stuff that I've learned for anyone. That's awesome. Yeah. And how do we track that down or can I post a link to it yet or is it it's to not, wait? Yeah. It's, not still, ready. it's still being written up. So right. I'm not That's sure right. when the publishing date, I think it's going to be this fall, but okay. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, just something to keep in mind. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Great. There's a U.S. version called the Fenway guide. Probably health for LGBTQ people. Okay. 
So uh, that's available now. I think it was published in 2016, but the Canadian one is good because it has some more specific um, Canadian references. And that is called, again? I think it's called Care for the LGBTQ Patient or awesome. something, or Great. Handbook. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Uh, my friend Ed Kacharski, family physician in Toronto who works at Sherbrooke Health, which is kind of like the three bridges there, he's one of the editors. So that's how I got involved, and you can you could Google his name and see when it comes out. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Great. My pleasure. I'm just maybe just a couple a couple sure. more questions here before we wrap up. I'm just curious, what as your your role as a practitioner and a gay man, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in this field? Good question. Don't flirt with my patients. <laughs> <laughs> Probably in the rule books, right? Yeah, that's yeah. like number one for losing your license. Right. <laughs> um, I would say, um, I think like like with my recovery, that I think it is important for physicians, you know, you have to be mindful not to disclose too much. Okay. You know, and I, I know that sometimes people really like hearing that. Uh, and maybe someone's listening to this and saying, Oh, I'm so glad to hear this, you know, whatever. But at the same time, this is not something that I typically would do in a, in a therapeutic setting yeah. because it really affects the dynamics of it. Absolutely. We have to maintain a professionalism and, and actually it's helpful for people when we maintain that professionalism, right? Mm-hmm. And someone isn't talking to their friend or their family, right? Yeah. Someone hopefully should be able to say whatever they want and they can express frustration and they're not worried about confidentiality or they're not worried about judgment or anything. Just someone is there to help them, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, you know, when I go home, I have my friends and family and, you know, I have my own life and I have my own feelings. When I'm at work, I'm there for that person, you yeah. know? And my goal is to, to help that person get the best care they can. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's different from a personal relationship. Yeah. So don't take that personally. If your physician seems cold or something, it's because they, that's, there's, there's a very good reason why they're maintaining that. Yeah. And maybe even flip that perspective and be grateful that that person is being professional enough yeah. to focus only on you as a right. patient. Yeah. So, you know, as a, as a gay man and as someone in recovery that of course I, you know, I you feel, tempted. Feel for yeah, I, I relate to those people. And yeah. sometimes I really want to say, we actually have a lot of con- in common or, you know, I can really relate to that. Right. But if that's not for me. That's not the time and place for me to be relating to that person. I think anyone with a pair of eyes can see that I'm, you know, that I'm gay or <laughs> certainly it's, I, I feel like it's your style. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, that I, especially if someone is like LGBTQ, yeah. I mean, I think for all, all physicians, everyone should be familiar with, um, asking people routinely about, um, how they identify yeah. with sexuality, with gender, you know, with relationship status, yeah. you know, and just these like open-ended questions, like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? You know, yeah. I love that kind of question. Cause it's just like, you could say whatever, yeah. you know, it's and open. there's no judgment. Yeah. And the question just implies that it could be any of those things, yeah. you know, where if yeah. you say, uh, are you, are you married? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, how old's your wife? You know, like those are yeah, very, so, those are very presumptive and kind of closing questions. And I've been on the receiving end of that, yeah, you know, yeah. and you're, then you just don't want to say anything to someone. Right. Totally. Uh, whereas someone's really open. So I definitely try to have that approach. I think it's easy for physicians or there are definitely lots of resources in Vancouver elsewhere though. I think most physicians are really are very open to that. And so again, taking advocacy that it's important that you identify that if you trust that person, you say, I just want to let you know this and you know, whatever, because then it prompts them to maybe ask those questions or to, you know, realize that there's more going on that you haven't talked about or those kind of things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can give someone the benefit of the doubt and see if you feel that they're trusting, uh, or trustworthy and then see how that goes. Um, but that's obviously totally up to you. 
but there's certain ways that we try to make people feel more comfortable. So obviously having safe spaces like, mm-hmm. like tree bridges or other places where that care is really prioritized. But in anywhere, you know, I, I did a rural residency mm-hmm. and, you know, you just put a little rainbow flag on, uh, or like the trans flag or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you just put a, a sticker or you have a safe space sticker or something like that on your office so that people feel like, okay, this person gets it or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not about me disclosing my, my personal life or relating to that person, but ways that, that make that person feel more comfortable, I think is really, really valuable. Right. That yeah. level of self-management yeah. is really professional and helps someone yeah. actually feel comfortable and yeah. safe. Yeah. And I'll ask, I'll ask very leading questions. You know, I saw someone the other week who's, you know, bathhouse, bathhouse, uh, participant and just asking leading questions, let them know. It's like, okay, so, you know, you go in the bathhouse or you just say like, um, uh, I mean, for some people, like you ever see those, those commercials where, where they, th- these kids are talking about like different kinds of drugs and they're mm-hmm. like ice bust slang. Right. Like, I don't know. Whatever. Right. Whatever yeah. talk about. Anyway. Uh, sometimes I'm tempted to be like, I, don't, I never even hear the people use the word Tina anymore, for example, but right, you know, yeah. if I just say like math, like, you know, do you use math rather yeah. than crystal methamphetamines or like, are you, yeah. using, are you using, are you using speed? You can, yeah, you can <laughs> adjust your lingo a little right. bit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or just saying, you know, whatever, again, something like men, women, or both, you just say, you know, how many partners do you have or, you know, that kind of thing. Like, yeah. are you sexually can you active? Elaborate? Yeah. yeah. You know, just just something where it, it just normalizes that conversation. And in right. this guy's case, I think it was one, you could tell that I was gay, but it's like, I mean, I don't go to bathhouses, but he doesn't know that. Yeah. Uh, but just letting him know that I understand the culture. Yeah. And that, it's a safe space. Yeah. You can safe, open up but here. informed space too. Right. Yeah. Where there's nothing he's going to say that's going to make me like clutch my pearls. Right. And freak but, out. Yeah, yeah. Like he can say that's whatever. Really and it's like, it doesn't matter that I myself am not doing those things. Right. It's that I understand that what that culture entails, Great. you know, and, uh, I think any physician again could learn that there's a documentary about cam sex, I think came out a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's again, health, um, health initiative for men in Vancouver has a bunch of resources. Like, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if someone doesn't know, or you want to talk to them about it, you can, you know, give your physician some information about how they can learn more about it and yeah. be like, it goes listen, both like, yeah, like just, you know, I'm doing these things, but also it's not like you're the first person in the world to go to a bathhouse, right? Yeah. Be like, you know, if you don't know, this is the whole thing, right? Yeah. That's my biggest message to you on this is like you, you're not the only one that's probably done this. Totally. If you haven't yeah. talked about something cause you're uncomfortable, right. there's probably someone out there that you can talk to about yeah. it with. Yeah. And it might not be a physician and you might not need a physician, right? Yeah. Talk to a nurse, talk to a, you know, public health nurse, or, you know, if you go often places have like STI clinics or stuff yeah. where, yeah. where it's very open, you know, and you can just find someone you trust, yeah. you know, or a friend or like anyone, like just have some entry point of someone where you feel comfortable sharing what's really going on. Yeah. And I would say that's a great way to start with the change is just get, get honest with someone you trust yeah. about what's going on for you. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, just one last question for me. Sure. If you had to go tomorrow, your time was up. Mm-hmm. What would you want the next generation of young people in the queer community to know? And what would you say to them? Can I love you- the It gets better campaign. Yeah. My own life has gotten so much better, you know? And I, I feel like, I mean, you don't have to be in recovery or queer to, you know, learn things and gain from experience or whatever over time. Like anyone, I think that as I've gotten older, I'm 37 now and, mm-hmm. and I feel like I've lived a life, you know, I've been, I've been through some stuff and had a lot of different experiences. I've lived in different places and, yeah. you know, I, I feel very grateful for the life I got to live and that I would just say, you know, if you're dissatisfied with something, 
do something about it, you know? And that that's, what's been the biggest difference for me is, and certainly I've had lots of bad days and, you know, times when I get frustrated and all kinds of things, but (laughs) I, I just, for me, it's like, you know, what effort am I making to change where I'm at with my life right Mm -hmm. now? You know, and not to say that everyone's just going to have a perfect life because they're making more of an effort. But I find when I have a good attitude and when I'm doing something to help myself yeah. and avoiding things that, that don't help me, you know, or yeah. hurt me, yeah. then no matter what the outcome of those, you know, what's going on in my life, I'll take pride in that, you know, mm-hmm. like I could get, you know, chewed out at a meeting, but it's like, did I get up early and go to the gym this morning? You know, am I eating well today? Mm-hmm. Am I living my best life? Like then I stand tall, you know, because I know that I'm doing what I can, uh, to take care of myself. And I'm, I'm making an effort. And I personally, I, I, uh, I don't care how much money someone has. I don't care, you know, where they came from, whatever. I value how hard people work. Mm. And when, when I meet someone and I can just see the passion that they have for something mm-hmm. and I can see the effort that they're putting in, it could be anything, you know, yeah. they could work at McDonald's, but they're putting in all this effort into their metal work or something, you know, yeah. it's just like, girl, go like <laughs> I live for it. You know, yeah. I love seeing that kind of thing. So yeah. if you, if you are not satisfied with where you're at, like, don't be afraid to shake it up and just pursue what is really important to you. you awesome. Know? And, you know, unfortunately your metal work might not pay the bills, <laughs> but you know, work at Starbucks and like make it meet, you know? Yeah. I think that I know people who, who do that. Albert Einstein did that. He, he said he had like the best year of his life when he was working as his patent clerk right. in Switzerland. And, you know, he, but he found this job that would just take up like minimal effort for him. Mm-hmm. And then he would go home and in his spare time, he wrote, you know, the theory of relativity. Yeah. You know I mean? That was his side hustle. That was just his, like you know? his for fun. Yeah. You know, but he, no one was paying him to do that. So he did what, what he wanted, but he found a job just to make ends meet, you mm-hmm. know? And I, I think that that's a, a really good thing. Yeah. I've been advised, you know, I remember reading, it's like, get a job where, um, some like temp job that has access to like a photocopy machine or, you know, <laughs> stuff where you just, you can, you have a printer and you've got fax machine and you can just like send off resumes. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, like just, just, you know, just get, use get that day job to just, you know, be a building block for something that you want. You know? Right. Yeah. I really like that. Cool. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Thank you so I'm much. I'm trying to live my life. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you have provided us with a wealth of resources Thanks. and knowledge today. Thank you so much for my pleasure. Um, being vulnerable with us on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. I think it's really great and kudos on all your success. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, is there any last words you want to pass off to the audience at all? No, just that, uh, that Jeremy is a very good friend of mine and, um, <laughs> that I am really proud of him and, and really happy to see kind of what you're doing with this. I know that this has developed out of, you know, some of your own yeah. personal challenges mm-hmm. and, and uh, experiences and that kind of thing. And just to say like, you know, when bad things happen, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and sometimes like the best things can come out of adversity. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are my biggest lessons. Totally. I am my biggest mistakes and failures are what's led me to my biggest success. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And it's just like, sometimes those things are beyond your control. Yeah. And you just got to live with them and like, just bear the discomfort and like, yeah. let yourself feel, you yeah. know, and, and then think about what you can take from that. Yeah. You know? And you can always turn it around. Yeah. It's all about your mindset. And it's so hard. My last week's episode was, I was having a really hard time but I broke through it, you know, because I just, I had to switch something because mm-hmm. I took responsibility in my own health, in my own, you know, behavior in my own life. 
and it's not always easy and it yeah. sucks facing that stuff. Yeah. Um, but as soon as I do, it gets good. Yeah. It gets better. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 And for me, sometimes even just like going to the gym, you know, just starting with something I can do that I know is going to make myself feel better. Yeah. Get know? out of your head. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, just do that first thing, just some first task or something. Yeah. Or whatever, yeah. You know, so. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Cool. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And um, all you listeners out there, if you have any questions, um, if you want to send them on my way, if you want to ask Kit anything or anything, you can uh, feel free to uh, send me a message on um, the website on journeytoworthy.com, journeynumber2worthy.com, or on Instagram, it's journey uh, to Jeremy. Great. Uh, yeah, feel if free. I, to. If I can just add yeah. um, that I'm not able to provide any medical advice uh, by email or over the phone or anything like that, uh, certainly if you have any um, general questions mm-hmm. um, that you're welcome to to let us know, and, and I'd be happy to follow up as best I can. I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to direct to in the right thing. Yeah, but yeah. potentially if we can, you know, connect you with with the right resource, that would be great. Awesome. Otherwise, um, you know, Jeremy can follow up with you and maybe yeah. help. You know, and and happy to be involved in that. But uh, yeah, just putting that out. No there, expectation. That, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And I am not the most organized person in the world, so I'm not. <laughs> I wish I could answer that kind of thing. But I'll start with my own email account and. And go from there. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And uh, have a great week, everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.